and welcome to Economics in 10 with Pete and Gav. A reader lives a thousand lives before he dies. The man who never reads lives only once. George R.R. Martin. Yes, this is our third summer reading special and hopefully we've got some great suggestions for you. Some are old, some are new, some are bold, and none are blue. (laughs) As always, we'll have a quiz along the way, but that's it. Let's crack on with our 10 questions that are all the same. So here we go, Pete. What book are you recommending and why? Okay, first book I'm going to recommend is Duncan Weldon's 200 Years of Muddling Through. Yes. And this is an engaging approach to what can be a very dull subject. Did you do economics history at uni? I think I did a little bit of it. Yeah, I did I did one economic history course at uni and I remember sitting in, it was quite exciting for me because we moved out of the regular economics rooms into the history uh, sort of area of the university, Mark. which is very exciting. But unfortunately, the uh, tutorials and lectures were very, very dry. Right. Okay. So the reason I recommend this book, because I think it's an important um, subject, because yeah. we often talk about placing economic ideas in their time. That's one yeah. of our running themes. And I think this particular book does it in a very engaging manner. Now, if I remember correctly, we recommended this book uh, at the end of our second summer reading special, but before it had come out. Mm. So I'm pleased now that you've read it to recommend it. I've read part of it. I've started reading it. Yeah, so I haven't read it all. But oh, okay. Yeah, so yeah. I've read the early stuff about it. But you're you. enjoying it. Yeah, I am enjoying it. It's brilliant. And actually... I and he's a neighbour, isn't he, really? Is Duncan he? lives in Hartford. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, oh, I well. often see him on Twitter, photos on the canal. Well, uh, he's just are, moved yeah. there, I think. I'm not that I'm stalking him, Duncan. <laughs> Uh, not that you listen to this but you know uh, he's around we could potentially have a beer with him he might be a secret listener yeah who knows Mm. yeah or we might have a beer in a pub with him without knowing (laughs) so what have you what have you read so far that's that's stood out for example well I've read the chapter about the you know the industrial revolution Mm. sort of the outset and I did actually zip forward in time because I was quite interested in his take on the sort of Blair years. Oh, okay. I have missed out quite a bit in between Yeah. Times. So can you read it like that, like a Doctor Who? Um, I think so. I suspect you would benefit from reading it chronologically. Right. But, uh, there are, you know, I think there are standalone chapters looking at specific eras and epochs right. within economic history. Is, uh, since, re- as you've been reading it, particular Industrial Revolution, did you read any parts of it and think, oh, I wish I'd read that before we did this podcast episode? Um, Does it relate to any of the economists we've looked at? I wouldn't... Well, possibly. I mean, if you think about the Industrial Revolution, it, uh, there's quite a few of our uh, uh, subjects of our podcast who, who you could sort of link that to, your Malthuses, right. your Ricardos, and stuff about the Corn Laws in there, for right. example. Yeah. So, okay. So, yeah. But no, I mean, I think the industrial... Sorry, not the, well, the Industrial Revolution, but just economic history more broadly can be really dry. And I, yeah. I think it's the opposite of that. I think it's a very engaging take on it. And the title, uh, sort of um, 200 Years of Muddling Through, <laughs> what I like about that is whenever you read any economic history, you do suddenly get this sense it's just accident after accident. Yeah. And whereas there are people who look back, oh, this glorious era of like economic liberalism and the sort of yeah. 19th century and oh, the Thatcher era or like... Oh, wasn't it great in the 1960s or the 1950s? And, you know, every era has its problems, its challenges, and its crises. You yeah. know? And you get a real sense of that from what yeah. I've read so far. Oh, there you go. Very so good. I would recommend that. Um, he's got a newsletter that is pretty good. I mean, he's obviously a very good writer. So um, sign up to his newsletter. Well, there we are. So that's Duncan Weldon, 200 Years of Muddling Through. Beautiful. Oh, excuse me. Just have a little <laughs> gulp of wine there. Uh, and Gavin. What is your first recommendation? Well, funnily enough, it's another economic history uh, kind of uh, book. Well, well, well. Yeah, and it relates to the last uh, Economist podcast we looked at. Right, um, okay. And uh, we've uh, 
I'm sure people will know this. Well, they may not know. We've struck a deal, haven't we, with the Economist today, uh, <laughs> where we are writing book reviews. Yeah. Yeah. So we've been asked by a good chum, Peter Cramp, if we could do some book book reviews. And we've written one on this, which is The Her Story of Economics by Edith Quipper. Yeah. And uh, basically, as um, we've talked about a number of times, um, most of economics history is related to white European American kind of economists you probably Brit, are Brits Brits yeah and um, she has explored um, kind of in depth um, the history of economics so mm. she's gone back through and looked at all the data and the writing of women and it's just a really really fascinating so book. does it focus on the sort of uh the work of female economists or does it focus on the role of women in economies it's it's yeah it's both basically and just writing generally about what they are writing about i mean one of the interesting things there's a few interesting things in well there's loads of interesting things and you and you do really learn lots from someone obviously you know with a just a normal understanding of economics you wouldn't have come across many of the stuff you know, yeah. I mean, we have covered, haven't we, some female economists, uh, but and we, I think we've tried quite hard to sort of uh, look for others, but yeah. there are a limited amount in mainstream sort of economic literature. Obviously, we've covered Ostrom and yeah. Dufflo and and the great John Robinson, but um, you struggle when you look beyond that, or at least. On the surface, you do, but yeah. I mean, what you're saying is that if you dig that bit deeper, yeah, you dig deeper, and you can see what they're doing. And yeah, what what's what what's interesting is the way that uh, anything within the household is not deemed to be of any economic worth. Yeah, so it's completely forgotten about. Yeah, and so um, I mean, we write we write this in in kind of in the review, which is kind of this idea that that was kind of pot to home economics it's like how yeah. do you manage a home you know and the you know where the word economics comes from or economics or whatever yeah. it's called you know is household management or yeah. and and so that's kind of what women were doing and so they had no place discussing political economy which is obviously what all our podcasts are pretty much about mm-hmm. like the smiths keynes and you know that's not keynes ricardo well, they're, they're talking about political economy and then it moves into economics and it's fascinating really because you know, um, that has led to the fact that when we talked about Kuznets, you know, GDP doesn't include a lot of the stuff that traditionally females yeah. have done. Uh, there's also another interesting book bit in there as well about how um, popular economics books, you know, like the Tim Hartford's of this world, originally they're all written by women, you yeah. know, and um, with great analogies to like Malthus and stuff like that. And um, that kind of got stopped when Marshall basically wrote this scathing review about how he didn't want to see it belittled. And then Keynes repeats this in his biographies book. You read that biographies book, didn't you? I think, or, what, or some of it, didn't you, when you read Keynes? Keynes' biography of Marshall. Yeah, but he's got a book like... I all, didn't read all of it. I read yeah. the specific chapter yeah. about Marshall, which and, was, was uh, very good, actually. Yeah, and that gets repeated in that book. And then that kind of just knocks it sideways. And there's also another brilliant bit at the end, and I've written a blog about this, which is a bit boring, but they talk about where does talent come from? And everyone assumes that when there's this talented person comes out of nowhere, like, oh, they're a genius, they're a prodigy, you know, whatever it yeah. might be. Because we don't value what's being done in the home, where does genius and talent come from? Just very, very, very good supportive family life. Normally, yeah. you know, back in the day from a female you know, who's been supporting the young child at home, you know, making sure that they're well read and doing all this kind of stuff like yeah. that. And so the whole book is brilliant and I would really encourage people to read it. Good. Well, that sounds... Uh, so that's just repeat the title again. Uh, the Her Story of Economics by Edith Quipper. Look out for our review of it in Economics Today. Right. So what book would you recommend and why, Pete? Okay, so I'm going to go to... Um, Next, Ed Miliband's. Remember Ed of... Yeah. Uh, I won't, I'm Chaos. Sure. Chaos with Ed Miliband or Stability <laughs> with Dave Cameron. <laughs> but he has recently brought out a book called Go Big, How to Fix the World. Uh, it's 20 Bold Solutions to Fix Our World. Does he mention eating the bacon sandwich in there? I think, I think he does. He's quite... Um, he's very self-deprecating. Yeah, he is, yeah. And obviously, uh, his podcast with Jeff Lloyd... Um, yeah. 
uh, reasons to be cheerful. This book, to a certain degree, uh, well, to a large degree, uh, brings together a lot of the ideas that have been covered in that podcast series. And if you haven't listened to that podcast, apart from Economics in 10, it's a very good podcast. And actually, in the intro to the book, he says lots of people who sort of write to them, sort of say, I'm not a Labour supporter, I'm a Tory, but I found it interesting when you looked at this. Because I think what they do in the podcast is they try and bring together and just look at a particular topic that's problematic in the current era that might be sort of housing and obviously in, mm. in the UK certainly we've got you know a big housing issue whereby um, um, young people certainly found it very difficult to get on the property ladder or just to find somewhere to set up a home which is affordable mm. uh, so for example in the in the book um, it draws upon some of the uh, the information they've come across in, in their podcast in, in, in a chapter about housing and particularly they focus on and they're quite sort of broad in the sense that they do sort of scour across Europe for ideas about what works in sort of different policy areas so they're looking at Vienna and Vienna if you didn't know about it think oh it's some sort of bourgeois city in sort of Austria you know if you wanted to live in Vienna you would have to be sort of loaded and actually they've got a very sort of um, progressive sort of housing policy there there's a lot of social housing uh, and so it's actually a very affordable uh, place to live uh, which okay. is, so yeah, that's, that's just one example of the chapters covered there's another one which I thought was really interesting actually about sort of voting age and how actually bringing the voting age back to 16 which uh, some people are horrified by you know yeah. people you know, you know when they're 16 but he said look there's a real sort of uh, possibility if they vote at 16 you know, it can be part of sort of civic education in schools. Yeah. You can really explore the issues. Whereas actually, if you leave it till 18, a lot of people off to uni, they fall out of sort of being in a particular location mm. and they never get into that voting habit. Uh, yeah, Whereas if you sort of vote, sort of, you know, it could be in local elections, could be in general elections, but if you get into that voting habit between the age of 16 and 18, you're more likely to want to potentially sustain that. And sort of, there isn't, you know, the, the levels of voting amongst young people yeah, it's low, you know, and you could say that, and that means that you get policies which broadly represent eld, el, uh, elderly people because they're more likely to vote. Can I can I ask? Do they talk about it from the other end? And I, I know this is quite controversial, but I think people should lose the vote after a certain age. <laughs> I'm not sure they do mention that. No. I think there should be some sort of kind of handing over my vote ceremony. <laughs> On what basis? On the basis that. Um, they're not long left in the world. And so therefore, they might not be thinking about the long-term future. And so so therefore, you know, they're voting on a very kind of particular... And it's not for the long-term growth of this country. Well, it's interesting, actually, because just before the Brexit referendum, my parents uh, were both around at the time. My dad's passed away since then. But uh, my dad was... 100% 100% Brexit. I mean, he would quite happily bring back sort of, uh, or would have done pound shillings and pence, yeah. you know, that kind of thing, you know, that, um, which could be being brought yeah. back. Yeah, get that pint <laughs> measurement back. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> we were allowed. I, I but, remember uh, my mum yeah. saying, uh, like, I don't really, she said, I don't really know how to vote, but it seems that a lot of the young people want a vote to remain, and therefore I'm going to vote to remain on the basis it's going to affect them more than it's going to yeah. affect me and it seems to be what they want. And I thought that was, well, there's a humility there, isn't there? Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I admired her for that. Well, there you go. What I'm saying is just let old people lose the vote. <laughs> <laughs> just chop it off. Look, you've had your time. Enga- you've been engaged. We'll look after you, well, don't I, you, Fred? No, I, 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 no, I was just wondering if they did talk about that, but I obviously they, they did. They and I don't agree with it. Okay. But, anyway, but what I do find interesting is... So just quickly, do you not think about the kind of... And I'm not saying this is a lot of old people, but they talk a lot of the time about how young people don't have the mental capacity to cope with mm. making decisions because they don't really know much. Mm. And I always think that argument is ridiculous, especially when you get... I'm not, And this is not how you go old people. I'm not, I'm not ageist. But yeah. what I'm saying is that obviously the mental capacity does go a little bit. You know, I'm feeling it now. I forget a lot. Yeah. yeah but what, and, and yet we still rely on them to make good decisions. And yet we're yeah. telling that young people do not have the mental capacity to vote. It, I, I think what I'm saying is that a lot of the arguments about why they don't allow 16 and even 14 year olds, I'd go down to that level, to vote 
I don't I, I don't think are logically consistent. Yeah. I'm not sure I'd go down to 14. But right. in summary, I probably would go down to 16. But anyway, that's just one chapter. Yeah. And, and it's, there's sort of 20 different sort of topic areas that are looked at throughout the book. And I, w- I would recommend it. And as he says at the outset, even if um, you don't agree necessarily with their ideas, they're, they're fascinating. You know, they're looking around the world, particularly around Europe, for solutions that seem to work you know, in those contexts at least, and thinking, well, why can't we try them here? Mm-hmm. You know, things that work, you know, it's kind of tried and tested things that work in other parts of the world. And I, I like that. There's a sort of pragmatism about it. So I'd, I I would recommend that. Mm. Uh, and it's, it was quite interesting about actually, just in the current context, and this is probably going to date this podcast uh, horribly, but it does anyway. So it's so summer, top 2022. But we're in the midst of a, a sort of political... Uh, election in that we are in the UK electing a leader for the Conservative Party who will become Prime Minister and the level of debate is just so poor you mm. know it's, it's, it's awful and you kind of think well perhaps it's you're trying to be charitable thinking it's perhaps because they're I've got a very sort of narrow demographic they need to I don't think you even to. have to talk about it from a conservative leadership point of view you could just talk about it just generally politics yeah no I know it's, yeah. it's, it's, I suppose it's particularly marked at the moment mm. But I think this book is in stark contrast to that, in that it's... And sometimes you do get sort of governments, you know, of every sort of ilk, where they do look around the world and think, well, what works? What works in other countries? Uh, I think, you know, if you look at Bank of England independence in the sort of, you know, 1997, you know, they're looking around thinking, oh, that's what Germany do. They've got low inflation. and, and, And you think both parties actually at times have done that. But I think at the moment we're not... We're not doing that, and I think there's something slightly depressing about Very that. Very inward-looking. Yeah, inward-looking. You think, well, why not look outward, you know, and, and see what's you know, <clears throat> what's best around the world and see if we can incorporate that into our uh, our context. But anyway, th- this is what this book's trying to do. If nothing else, it'll provoke a debate, mm. even if you disagree with elements of it. I'd really recommend reading it. I think Edmund Band, and this might sound patronising, I hope it doesn't, has seems to have really kind of great it sounds a bit weird to say as an old, older man but has really gr- become much more confident as a speaker yeah. like within parliament and stuff yeah. that I mean there's a, an incredible clip on yeah. Twitter where he, he takes down this kind of argument of Boris Johnson it, he's so full of it yeah. and that I mean he was he, he never got the sense of that when he was the leader oh, you know but and, you do sort of think, I mean even <laughs> and I hesitate to say this but uh if you look at William Hague yeah. as conservative mm. sort of uh, candidate, he was dreadful. Yeah. And yet later on, I'm not saying I agree with the policies of the party at the time, but he was better. Yeah. You know, well, I think people, some of, people get thrown into of, things too yeah, soon. Yeah, yeah. And you kind of think if Ed Miliband, but maybe he needed to go through that experience yeah. of sort of failure to come out the other side. What a to lesson, what a lesson. Sort of be this sort of more mature, more reflective sort of thinker. I'm not saying yeah. he wasn't mature or reflective at the time, but yeah. uh, but there we are. Yeah, yeah. interesting. So, right, okay, thank you. So, Gavin, <laughs> I keep forgetting the format of this particular podcast. I keep need to ask you, what book you, would you like to recommend and why? Well, as you know, Pete, I try every year to stick in a graphic novel. Yes, you did. Yeah. So and I stoically <laughs> refused to read them. You know, yeah, I know. <laughs> Which is my minor mind. Yeah. And this one is beautifully uh, put together. It's called Days of Sand right. by Amy De Jong. I probably said that wrong. Amy De Jong. How do you spell that? J O N G H. You know, it's kind of Dutch, isn't it? De Jong. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay. And what it is, it's to do with the kind of Great Depression. Right. And uh, parts of America where basically um, in these farming communities, they over-farmed the land and then there was basically drought. It didn't Mm. rain Mm. for years and it just basically created these really harsh environments Mm. where it was basically a struggle. So when the winds picked up, all the sand came up and so... There's all these photos of houses where they've stuck newspaper on the walls to stop the sand coming in. There's a lot of dying because they breathe in the sand particles and there's some really sad bits in the book. But also just related to 
what was also going on within the economy at the time yeah. and um so what's the nature of it is it is it a work of fiction or is it yeah a... it's a work of fiction but she kind of i think she based it on someone it's about the bloke who go who gets his first job as a photojournalist right. to travel into this yeah. land where he has to basically take photos of it yeah. and it also is a one about where the photos can actually um, reveal everything, yeah. you know, t- to to the reader, and he. Uh, well, actually, I don't want to give it away, but there's something that happens within the story um, that is phenomenally drawn. The story is um, beautifully put together, and um, and then at the back, you talk, you see about how she went through the kind of American archives, and there's a very famous picture of a woman holding her baby in the Great Depression I don't know if you know it's on news but it's incredibly f- famous yeah. um, and it was kind of part of that collection of yeah. information that she got this kind of book idea from yeah. but it, it also is a parallel if that makes sense for today because it's about what happens when you have probably over farmed and you've got this hostile environment yeah. and how do you adapt to it yeah. and you know, what do you do? And eventually the problem does get solved in America because yeah. the rains come in yeah. and eventually the soil and then it takes away this massive dust bowl. But, you know, we're sitting here sweltering now and kind of <laughs> thinking, how are, is farmland going to cope in a world where there is going to be days of sand, yeah. as it were? So, yeah, very thoughtful yeah, book. Yeah, interesting on both levels. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me just as you're talking of... Um, it's a book... A, a famous book which I read a number of years ago now The Greats of Wrath by uh, oh, yeah, John yeah. Steinbeck I think that gets same. mentioned in it yeah it's the same era and I remember it because a lot of kids at school now read or they did up until recently of Mice and Men mm. um, but The Greats of Wrath is set in that sort of similar era and it's a more sort of expansive mm. sort of take on that era and I, I remember to be honest I don't remember the detail of it now which sort of bears in mind your reasoning why I shouldn't be able to vote anymore but uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember really enjoying it uh, in the sense of just really finding it quite a moving yeah. sort of take on on that era this so, is moving but with pictures yeah well there we are then. Yeah. Well, probably as we forget more and more words that might be helpful that's why it's perfect for yeah. me right anyway Days of Sand by Amy de Jong great okay what book are you recommending and why Right, okay, so I am going to recommend, partly because it's a bit of a talking point book, uh, The Journey of Humanity by Oded Galore. Right, well, I've never heard of it. You've never heard of it? No. Interesting. Is it old? No, it's it's relatively recent. Okay. Um, And you will have read some books by Harari. Yes. Yes, okay. Yeah. And sometimes the sort of end point of those books, like Sapiens, is a bit sort of equivocal shall we say like "Mm, where are we going to end up if we Mm. sort of carry on this pathway and it's sort of speculative I suppose about sort of where humanity is heading now this book is sort of touted as a counterpoint to that in that it um, sort of has a more optimistic ending if you like there's a sort of optimism about where sort of humanity end up but it's that same I suppose it's the same sort of literature as an economist. It's kind of like the broad sweep of history and where and where we might end up. Uh, so this, I'm listening to this as an audio book. Love it. We've uh, really yeah. diversified there. Yeah, I'm going to recommend another audio book later as well. Uh, but um, so, and I am sort of through the the main sort of things that I've listened to so far are about how we sort of escaped the sort of Malthusian epoch, oh, okay. which obviously has yeah. a strong link to one of our episodes where we mm-hmm. looked at Malthus, but he sort of looks at some of the sort of underpinning sort of structural factors, and it's quite a complex argument as to why um, we managed to escape that kind of Malthusian trap. Because mm-hmm. uh, if you remember in our Malthus episode, we talked about that, yeah. how uh, for the vast majority of sort of, recorded and unrecorded human history Malthus was absolutely right you know if there was an increase in sort of uh, agricultural production it would lead to an increase in fertility 
that would eat up any sort of surplus and then people would end up back in this sort of miserable sort of marginal sort of existence. So he's looking at sort of the multi-causal factors as to, as to how we escaped that. That's what I've read so far. Um, but it's interesting. I read a sort of a sort of slightly mixed review about it today in, in The Guardian as I was sort of preparing briefly for this podcast. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I, so far you can certainly say it's, a, it's, it's an interesting read. Can you give me a quick uh, pros and cons of uh, audiobooks? Okay, so audiobooks, there's a certain sort of convenience to them in that uh, you can listen to them when you drive to and from work. And so is that what you mainly do? I do, yeah, in the main, or if I'm going on a, a sort of longish journey, right. um, maybe I'm taking my daughter somewhere and then on the way back I might sort of listen to right. sort of a bit of a chunk. Um, and if you get the right narrator, it's it's quite, you know, they can be quite engaging. It, right. It's interesting if you get the right narrator, because you get the wrong narrator, it can turn you off what otherwise might right. be quite sort of interest, an interesting read. I tend to listen to non-fiction rather than fiction, though I did try... Sort of the odd sort of fiction book, but I found that a bit odd. Okay. Uh, I don't know why. What are the cons? Um, I, I suppose that's a con, isn't it? A little bit if you get yeah, wrong yeah, narrator. wrong narrator can sort of put you off a book you might otherwise like. Whether you absorb it as much, I'm not sure actually, because I can think of some quite memorable audio books I've listened to. Um, another con is I do sometimes listen to them in bed when I do fall asleep. Right. <laughs> You probably can't bookmark, can you? Well, I just stop. No, no, in terms of like when you fold a page. To oh, I see what things. you mean. Yeah, yeah. I suppose I'm not sure actually. I've not explored that. Maybe you can, but uh, right, okay. I, don't, I don't know. Well, thank you, Pete, for yeah. um, encouraging people to listen to audiobooks, sir. Yeah. Well, it's my pleasure. If you've got a busy schedule, sometimes people can't just pick up a book, can they? Yeah, I mix up. I do still read. Yeah, I'm not saying you. I'm not saying you're not. Saying you're not. not. <laughs> I think a mixed economy is still preferable. <laughs> okay. Now, right. uh, that is halfway through, Pete. Right, okay. Which means we're going to have a quiz. Oh, wow. I, didn't, I wasn't expecting a quiz. Yeah, no, we, we got a quiz. And uh, I think it's, this is a classic literature, literature quiz. Right, this is, this is, splash of wine. This is pub yeah. quiz classic, right? Right, hit me. It's first lines. Oh, okay. All right, so good luck. Um. Uh, first lines for a particular genre? Or? No, they're just famous first lines. And Fiction? I'm not giving you any... Fiction? It's just famous first lines. <laughs> famous first lines. And I'm not giving you any help. How many questions? Uh, ten. Ten? Yeah, we're going we're to be very quick. Right, okay. It is a truth universally acknowledged... That a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. The wealth of nations. <laughs> now that's pride and prejudice. <laughs> I was just guessing it'd have to be economist, and the language okay. sounded similar to. Okay, all right, I have to say now they they are all they are all fiction. Well, why do you say that? Okay, all right, all right, all right. Mean. Yeah. Call me Ishmael. Well, be dick. Thick. It was the best of times, it was the yeah, worst of times. Tale of Two Cities. I'll quote there. Yeah. Okay. I enjoyed that, actually. It's the only Dickens book I've enjoyed. Thank you. Uh, oh, not me saying it. Okay. No. You read the book. Uh, it was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. The third man? Oh, actually, classic 1984. Uh, okay. okay, you got two out of four so far. Doing very poorly. Okay. If you really want to hear about it, the first thing you'll probably want to know is where I was born and what my lousy childhood was like and how my parents were occupied and all before they had me and all that David Copperfield kind of crap. But I don't feel like going into it if you want to know the truth. (laughs) Classic, classic novel written by a young protagonist. On the road? Catcher in the Rye. I read that twice. The first time I read it, I hated it. Mm. Second time I read it, I hated it. Um, it, <laughs> it, was love, it was love at first sight. Is that it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's quite a difficult one, isn't it? 
it's got it's it's Give got a clue. Come on. it's it's been made into a, 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 a film um and it's about war and it's a well-known expression you know you're in between a rock and a hard place War and Peace? Catch-22. Okay. <laughs> uh, I've read that as well. Uh, right, okay. All, ha- all happy families are alike. Oh, I know this. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Oh, God, I've read this. Oh. Give me a clue. I've read it. I know the quote. Yeah, I don't. Um, I've read it. Give me a clue. Uh, Era. russian russian Russiary type stuff. Tolstoy? Yeah, uh, yeah I think. What, what, what do you want? <laughs> well, let's have a war and peace on Anna Karenina. Right, go for the second one. Anna Karenina. Correct! Okay, <laughs> excellent. Okay. <laughs> it, uh, I'm going to leave. No, I'll do that. Okay. It was a queer, sultry summer. The summer they electrocuted the Rosenbergs. And I didn't know what I was doing in New York. Truman Coppola. Nah, bell jar. Uh-huh. Uh, you better not never tell nobody but God. Colour purple? Yes! Thank you. Christmas won't be Christmas without any presents, grumbled Joe, lying on the rug. Uh, Christmas won't be Christmas without any presents, grumbled Joe, lying on the rug. Christmas Carol, is it? Nope. Uh, nope. Christmas or Christmas nope. without any presents. Yeah. Give me a clue. Uh, it's, it's classic American. Joey loves it in Friends. There's a, a big. There's one of the, the, the programs in, in Friends where he just goes on about this book and starts crying about it and stuff. Classic American novel. The Grinch stole Christmas. The Little Women. Little, little women. Okay, final one. I've seen that film. Before. It's a funny thing about mothers and fathers. Even when their own child is the most disgusting little blister you could ever imagine, they still think, think that he or she is wonderful. Classic British fair. Just being made into a new film with Emma Thompson. Uh, being made into a musical. Revolting children. We are the revolting children. Uh, da, da, da. The Roald Dahl? Yeah. Um, Roald Dahl. Uh, Come on. Bigger the TV, the better the man. Oh, no. Matilda. Matilda. Oh, that's painful. Okay, so... <laughs> done really badly, then. we got one, two... Three, four. I'm embarrassed. Four out of eleven. There was an extra one in there. That was it. Yeah, I did. Yeah. So there you go. Anyway, it's the end of the quiz. See if you can beat Pete. I feel quite confident that many listeners will. Well, you never know. You never know. Anyway, ask the question. Right, Gavin. What would you recommend next, and why? Well, this is a book I'm currently reading. Right. Now, I put a uh, survey on Twitter and asked people. Do they read just one book at a time, or do they just randomise it? Or, as I have, I have an upstairs book and a downstairs book. Oh, interesting. So, a bedtime book yeah. and a daytime book. Yeah. And most people, fun enough, were kind of like, just mix up. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, and so this is my bedtime book, and it's uh, Darren McGarvey, The Social Distance Between Us. Now, right. I think, if I remember correctly, maybe the first summer reading special we did, I recommended Poverty Safari which was absolutely superb. It's kind of nuance, kind of look at poverty, you know, based mainly in Scotland. And this is the same kind of thing. And it, it basically does what it says on the tin. I mean, he did this brilliant series for the BBC, kind of looking at class. And you can see it feeds in from that documentary because he's talking a lot of the time within the chapters about how he was recording this for the TV and so on. And the title says, oh, the social distance between us. So he's saying about how basically the people in power mm. just unfortunately have no idea about 
what the rest of us well not rest of us mm. you know, kind of, but you know are kind of going through you know mm. the, the, the poverty out there so the chapter I'm reading about at the moment is to do with welfare and the kind of loops that you have to go through and how little you get and, and it, it, we, we were talking about earlier on about one of these conservative leadership uh, people saying you know the classic line that they sometimes want to come out of that oh there's people just at home like uh, having their benefits and just loving it and all this kind of stuff like that and you kind of think, have you read anything recently or spoken to anyone mm. recently who, who's been on benefits and has gone through the system of, of sanctions yeah. and and know how much you get and what the kind of cost of living is like and the rental opportunities that you get? And he goes through this kind of litany of the issues, the health yeah. issues, that you, the, the problems that you have accessing, you know, um, Doctors, particularly within poor wards, because a lot of the time that there's less money being spent in the wards that need it the most because yeah. of you know where, where they want to put their money. Yeah. Uh, it talks about education wow. and yeah. and about how, um, particularly in Scotland, like when the algorithm came out for the COVID stuff, how it revealed that they were yeah. going to shut down all these kind of poor schools and basically say, oh yeah, you might be an A, but we're going to give you a D. You know, until people could contest it, and the whole structure is society is to kind of keep these people down, and um, he is exposing the fact that there is this just huge gap between yeah. those who are in power and those who they're supposed to be helping. It's interesting. I think I've I've talked about this before, but I remember at uni reading a book, The People's War by Angus Calder, which was all about. It's a sort of social history of World War Two, but it's fascinating. But if you look at the, the policies which came out in the 1950s and the 1960s, a lot of them were more uh, sort of closely attuned to the needs of the population. And partly it's because a lot of, you know, the war basically mixed people up. So people from sort of aristocratic backgrounds, from sort of upper middle class backgrounds, would be serving as officers possibly, but alongside sort of, you know, brave working class. And it just mixed everyone up. And so mm. when they got back from that, there was a sort of general sense, yeah, we, we do have to do... These are our sort of comrades. These are our sort of fellow sort of Brits, if you like. Well, I suppose... And if you look, yeah. the further and further we've moved away from that, I think people just don't have any sense. I mean, what what are... Even university now, you kind of... I suppose university is possibly the only place where people from different backgrounds... Uh, mix up but you do wonder the degree to which people when they get to university do actually mix with people Mm. from sort of different backgrounds to themselves I mean they might have to to a degree but certainly in their sort of social spaces uh, you know perhaps they don't Uh, and you you kind of there's something really depressing about that Um, but so I I get that completely and you do see this again it's not it's probably (laughs) more prevalent in the Conservative Party but you know even in the Labour Party that distance between the sort of the ruling class if you like yeah. and, the, and the ruled you know there's just no sense of empathy you know what, what's it the, the word we talk about so verstehen you know they're not able to sort of put themselves in someone yeah, else's so shoes there know, was, did you, you see that clip with, with Rishi Sunak that's been dug out oh yeah, yeah, yeah. well I've got some uh, you know some wealthy upper class friends I have some middle class friends and obviously I have some working class actually I don't have any working class friends <laughs> It's so funny. I oh, know. No. Like, oh my word! Yeah. Brilliant. Whoever found that, it's such a yeah. funny clip. And there's another clip as well later on where he's talking about this and about you know where I've come from. And then I reveal that I went to a private school and they're amazed. <laughs> no one's amazed. Mate. It's, 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 but so, it's interesting you're saying about so the, the other candidate. I think it's Kemi Badenoch, uh, just sort of ranting about people on welfare. And you just think, I do this thing in one of my economics taster lessons where you look at the. The overall welfare budget, uh, you know, which includes any sort of social protection, you know, it could be sort of pensions, you know, health for people on disabilities. And I say, what proportion of that do you think is unemployment benefit? And they all like, you know, I am forty percent. They like, no, 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 it's about one or two percent. Yeah, yeah. And they're always like astounded. Mm-hmm. And the other thing to sort of play with kids, and admittedly, they probably. At this age, they don't know the cost of much anyway. How much do you think benefits is a week? And they're like, oh, it's this. And you think, it, no, it really isn't. Yeah. You know, yeah, and, they're uh, always surprised. But there's a sort of a profound ignorance there. But there's also a profound prejudice amongst many kids. And you think, where do you get that from? Yeah. You know, and it's 
it's not through lived experience, it's through sort of, well, it's just sort of simple prejudice, isn't it? But there's very few sort of avenues for that to be challenged. And we don't have this mixing up of people. Where are mm. people mixed up? Well, they talk about that, the death of pups, don't they? You yeah. know, and, and that's where communities used to come together. But again, yeah. now you've got swanky wine bars, yeah. you know, you've driven maybe local communities out, gentrification mm. and stuff like that. And so you don't have that mixing up. Yeah, and um, yeah, anyway, it's reflected in the book. Yeah. But Darren McGarvey, brilliant writer, like I say, Poverty for Sorrow is a, a classic, yeah. and, and this one as well. It's a, it's much, I think it's quite darker in tone, actually, but um, it's very revealing. Okay, okay, so what are you reading next? Uh, or no, what are you recommending next, and, and why? Okay, I'm going for something slightly lighter. Uh, Zymanski and Wigmore, Cricketomics. Right, wow. The Anatomy okay. of Modern Cricket. Love it. So this is, uh, I think... Zemanski certainly wrote a book, Soconomics. Oh, yeah, that's which I, it. I haven't read yeah, that. Okay. Have you read that? Oh, I've read parts of it. I bought it yeah. for some. But this is about sort of, you know, I suppose applying statistical techniques to look at some sort of questions in cricket. Um, and I'll just give you a couple of, because I am a cricket fan. I do like, oh, I do good, like yeah. bowling cricket. And, uh, you love it, baseball? Uh, yeah, England have had a sort of a <laughs> very, entertaining, very entertaining summer so yeah. far. Oh. Got thrashed in the yeah, one-day yeah, internationals, yeah. but the test, the test series. Yeah. Anyway, um, so yeah, but really interesting. So for, I'll just give you a couple of examples um, of one looks at sort of the private school sort of domination of uh, sort of the England Test eleven, and saying, well, what what degree is it dominated by private schools? Why, uh, and has that always been the case? And really interesting. So you go back through sort of the 20th century and you tended to find that actually a lot of the bowlers in the test team were from state schools, a lot of the batsmen were from private schools. And some of that's about, you know, they speculate it's about kit, you know, you know, it's, it's you know, or pitches. You know, if you, if you went to a private school, you'd play on quite a good pitch and therefore you would learn how to bat, you know. Uh, whereas if you went to a state school, probably... You might not have, you know, the pads, the bats and so on, uh, but you might be able to bowl at your mates in the street, you know, so you could develop bowling. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's stuff like that. But also, what was really interesting, it said, we always assume that, you know, when we look at the Ashes tests, that you're looking at, you know, private school Brits against state school Aussies. And actually, when you look at the Australian team, loads of them are privately yeah, educated. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And obviously the private school system in Australia is slightly different, but a lot of them do go to expensive elite schools. I'm going to yeah. assume that Warner doesn't. But I'm going to be... Uh, there's probably Rude there. I'm going to... I'm going to... I can't guess. remember the names, I'm but gonna... more than you think uh, <laughs> okay. went to sort of elite uh, private right. schools. So it's not this kind of like uh, right. poshos versus... Yeah, yeah, well... So that was interesting. Very good, yeah. Some of the other stuff that I found interesting, it was looking at, you know, as... Uh, Looking at women's cricket in particular and how women's cricket has innovated sometimes a lot more than men's, you know, right. in terms of sort of formats and stuff like that. Uh, and it's maybe been a bit sort of nimbler. There's also a bit where it talks about uh, the expansion of cricket. And if it were to become an Olympic sport, lots of governments then sponsor anything which is an Olympic sport. And then that would probably have a bigger impact on sort of the expansion of the game beyond yeah, sort okay. of, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, the old sort of colonial, yeah. uh, it, you know, countries. It possibly could expand beyond that, which is quite interesting. Mm. Um, Can I just say, I was over at Audley End the other day, um, yeah. during the sunshine, and there's a quick, they have cricket matches on there. Yeah, lovely, lovely. Yeah, and I was quite amazed that watching this local village kind of cricket match... Yeah. I saw a three reverse slog sweeps. Yeah. <laughs> and that, it just made me laugh. I'm thinking, all right, so the way it's yeah. kind of come into the, yeah. the the local village cricket, they're all having yeah. a go. Yeah. There you go. Are you happy yeah. with that? You, so are you? Yeah, just 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 quickly on the, on the yeah. slog sweep front. There's a lot of stuff about how, uh, you know, 2020 and so on has made sort of test cricket more attacking yeah they do some statistical analysis on that and say actually the sort of runs per over predates that by some way people like Gilchrist actually uh, were at the sort of uh, 
the forefront of bringing bringing that in. Yeah, well, I'm not surprised about that. Gilchrist was a phenomenal cricketer. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, no, so, it's, so it's repeat again, please. If you like cricket. Yeah, which you know you may not, and if you don't, the soconomics. Yeah, this is cricket. Well, we've got fans all around the world in India. Yeah, where it's obviously the national a lot, sport. Actually, about Indian cricket. Yeah, in there, Pakistan, about, Australia. Um, yeah, there's quite a lot about the sort of representation of Indian cricket. Um, you know, are there now more people from sort of rural areas yeah. as cricket's grown? But they did quite a lot about how still predominantly it's people from urban areas who sort of form right. the majority of sort of the test team. But that is changing, but but slowly. Did you but see it, the story of the fake IPL league that was yeah, there? Really interesting one. Did you it? see the pictures of that? No, 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 it's no. so unconvincing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so there was some to explain. It, I think it was people in Russia were betting on yeah. this IPL league, and it was all sort of fake. They got just sort of agricultural workers in India to dress up in the team's colours on what vaguely looked like a cricket pitch and they sort of filmed it and then... It's like an updated version of the Sting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there you yeah. go. Right, okay, what was it again one more time? Uh, Cricketomics by Saminsky and Wigmore. Very good. Gav, what are you going to recommend and why? You know what? We can't have a, a, a summer reading special without me recommending a Michael Lewis book. So right. uh, I think last time I recommended The Fifth Risk, which yeah. was awesome. And, um, you know, talk about what happens when you get a president who comes into power who doesn't believe in government. Yeah. And, you know, you're going to reduce government spending in all these key departments. And so, right. So his next book, The Premonition, is called the Pan- A Pandemic Story. And it's just... You know, in, in many, he kind of mentions the fifth risk. He says that this might seem like it was a natural book after this, and it kind of is, but he does sort of try and distance itself. From it. And it's just basically all these stories about scientists and doctors who basically are aware that there's going to be a pandemic coming soon, mm. and they prep for it. And they, what they did is they used the um, the Spanish flu. Yeah. They go back into the Spanish from 1918, I think it is, yeah. about what spread it, what did it. And yeah. then the beginning of it starts with this girl who's like 14 or 15 or something like that, yeah. who's just doing a science project about how viruses spread. Yeah. And then she gets help from her dad, who is like whatever. Yeah. And then she, he's like, blimey, this is really, really useful to map yeah. about spreading. And then but all the, basically all these characters come together to eventually put together a pandemic plan yeah. that, without spoiling it too much, gets kind of Bend. ignored, yeah. you know. But it is interesting because this is now sort of... I'm reading it now post-pandemic, you know, mm. it's still obviously clearly well, around. say post-pandemic. You know. I had COVID last week. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> like, and we were talking earlier yeah. on about how many um, <laughs> teachers are off and pet students are yeah. off from COVID. And, like... Um, one of the big things that they discover, you know, is just how small spaces schools are, like classrooms, yeah. and how kids are just all over each other. So they're yeah. super spreaders and, and things like that. And obviously, there's clearly a massive debate within education about whether it's right to close schools or not. Yeah. And so, and all the data is coming you, out quite rightly about that them. now. Well, that's what I'm saying is that in hindsight, you're kind of thinking, that clearly there is it's been detrimental for you know the education of of our, our young youngsters but what never gets told in that story is the counterfactual is well okay let's assume that we did carry on and i know you can yeah. point to places like sweden but in places like sweden where the decline in educational standards hasn't been as much there has been longer term consequences in terms of health of teachers and then you've got yeah. to think about the spread of the disease generally, yeah. and would we have had more cases than we've already got within this country if we didn't shut yeah. down? So it's a, it's just a massively nuanced discussion, but the book, nuanced, at, you know, yeah. is is brilliant. Yeah, I mean, he's a great writer as well. He's written so many good books. I mean, in some respects, if you were a keen student listening to this podcast, I would recommend any of his works. Yeah, really, they're, really they're all superb. Interesting, now, just to go back to the pandemic really briefly, because I remember... I don't know, re- reading some articles about the earthquake in New Zealand, some studies done about that, saying, well, kids out of education, they don't study academically. But 
uh, sorry, software academically. And I, I, I sort of agree with that, really. I think the academic impact of lockdowns has been fairly minimal, certainly for secondary age kids. It might be different in primary age kids. Uh, maybe I'm, I'm, I can only speak from sort of the sector that I work in. But what is definitely the case, you know, kids had sort of pre-existing sort of propensities to either miss school or be anxious those are much, much more pronounced. And you yeah. do think, you know, if any sort of future lockdowns, that that has to be considered. And staff as well. I think some staff ended up being much, very, very anxious about returning to school after an absence, you know. Yeah. And um, so I suspect there will be a, you know, we were in the same boat again, a more sort of nuanced discussion. It's so difficult though, because, you know, we certainly had one parent who died, you know, COVID, and, mm. you know, at my school. Um but I would some, argue some a lot of that is social poor. care is a social care aspect. It's not an educational yeah. thing. It's like the structure of society is not is is in a, a in a way where certain people are going to be greatly affected because we do not have the system in place to deal with them anyway. Possibly, you but know. I think if you just on a really really simple level, if you fall out of the habit yeah. of attending school or attending work, it's harder to fall back into it. But saying what I'm saying is that it's easier to do that. For example, if um, you are supposedly going to be working online, yeah. and a you don't have broadband because it's yeah, not out yeah, there, yeah. everyone. You probably don't have the technical equipment. You might have a yeah. household of five people where you've got cramped space and yeah, you've yeah, only got no, one computer, yeah. and so you're going to be missing lessons just naturally from that. And so there's a, yeah. there's these issues that are much broader. Um, they were interesting yeah. I mean our experience was you know we were quite good at getting technology to kids I know we're diverse, digressing here but it wasn't the obstacle the obstacle was often the kids didn't open the technology yeah. that we got and you kind of look into that and think why is that and some of that would be parents who are still out working yeah exactly work. yeah, yeah. but it might also just be an attitudinal thing yeah. it's, it's just not that important or we, we don't you know, we're not like as obsessed as your average middle class yeah. child, a yeah. parent rather of you've got to do your work. They're quite happy in normal times, their kids to go to school and socialise and work, but that sort of natural sort of I don't know what what the word for it is structure, you know, and that enables kids mm. to become more socially mobile. You take that away and kids do go backwards, yeah. you know. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. we, yeah, we, an we did digress. Well, yeah. yeah. But it, but what I'm, well, the thing about Michael Lewis's books, they just get you thinking. Mm. And they get you thinking in many, many different diverse ways. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there you go. Go for it. Last one. Okay, so I, I am going to recommend another audio book. And I do listen to sort of... Uh, the the audible which is sort of amazon's vehicle for audio books yeah. and um <laughs> i quite like they've got this series called the great courses and right. uh one i've listened to which i found really interesting was the industrial revolution uh by a lecturer called patrick allett mm-hmm. and he's got the same voice as one of the crickets on test match special yeah, right, i can't okay. remember he must be from derbyshire somewhere like that but uh I think he lectures in America. But what I liked about this uh, sort of audio book, and I did say earlier why why I like audio books, but I think, again, it's almost going back to the start when I was talking about the the Duncan Weldon book. It's just an engaging approach to economic history, which can be quite dry and sort of statistically uh, driven. And it just really gives you that broad historical sweep as to, you know, it takes you right up to the present day, actually. It's not just about the Industrial Revolution in the sort of 17th, 18th centuries. It looks at the, the preconditions for the Industrial Revolution. But it's really, really interesting because you get all, you get sort of anecdotes, you get stories, which, can, you know, there's quite a narrative to it, but you still get the sort of the detail as well. Um, and it just reminds me of some things which I do talk about with kids because uh, just to give one example... Um, we often get this impression when you look at the activities of the, the IMF and the World Bank and sort of structural adjustment policies and developing countries should sort of liberalise and sort of remove quotas and tariffs. <laughs> and it, the whole debate within this about, or when, sorry, when you read about how the US, Germany, the UK all industrialised, 
In many cases, it was behind quite high tariff barriers, mm. you know, to, just to give yeah. one detail. Uh, um, and it also talks about sort of, you know, when, I, when I've taught sociology in the past, like, you know, when education for all came in, it looks at why that came in, you know, why it came in and why that sort of supported to a certain extent uh, the needs of the workforce. You see it as this kind of sort of uh, magnanimous gesture by the sort of... Uh, the upper and middle classes, oh yeah, young people, they need an education, but actually it served the interests yeah. inevitably of, uh, you know, the moneyed sort of bourgeoisie, you know, but it's, it's, but it's not, he, he is not coming from a sort of left-wing perspective at all. I think the suspect he's probably centre-right, you know, it's quite pro, it's quite a sort of positive view of how sort of industrialisation has led to sort of greater longevity, you know, redu- reductions in infant mortality and, and the rest, which I, I do agree with. Um, but it's just fascinating to get, and you do get all the usual sort of suspects in terms of uh, larger than life characters like Brunel and people like that covered in it. But as an introduction to sort of the Industrial Revolution, it's you know it's not a short series. But if you are someone who commutes, fascinating, you know, day by day. Say, say it again. What is it called? The Industrial Revolution. It's part of the Great Courses series, and it's by Patrick N. Allett. Okay, sounds fascinating. Yeah. So, Gav, is this your last recommendation? Yeah, this is the last oh, one. I look forward to hearing it. Okay, now I started with a recommendation where we'd written a review for the economics today, uh, today, and we're finishing with our first review for the economics today, right? Which is coming out in September. You can yeah. pre-order it already, and we've written a review of the Bank of England book. Can't we just print more money? Right. Okay. Uh, basically, ten questions. Uh, that Jack Andrews and Rupal Patel have answered, right? Okay, to basically uh, increase the economic literacy of this country. I mean, there's a big thing. I mean, it's at the start of the book. Um, Andrew Bailey does a forward talking about the importance of, you know, the, I think, and you know, you're the person who obviously thought about doing a podcast in the first place. But as we've gone along, my vision of it is that this is about economics for everyone. Yeah, this yeah. is what we want. Economics for all, economics for everyone. And I tweet that quite a bit. People and have a longer than, a relatively long attention span. Yeah. Right? Our podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, they got yeah. Well, yeah. You know, and so we want, we want, we want it, yeah, to accessible for all. That's the whole yeah. point, accessible for all. That's why I try to do like fun things online yeah. related to it, cartoons or whatever it might be. Yeah. And, this is what this this book is all about. It's just saying, look, come on, we want everybody to have a good understanding of economics because if everyone has a good understanding, it means there could be more discussion, more dialogue yeah. about what it is. And what is brilliant about this book, it is jam-packed. Like, it is like doing a kind of an economics GCCA level in kind of book form. It just mentions everything, you know, everything that you teach in the classroom. Yeah. It just churns through, you know. Demand, supply, elasticity, and then it moves into externalities, and and then you go the macro side of things, and it talks about shoe leather costs and everything we teach in the class. It's such a brilliant book, and they use brilliant examples. And then the last two or three chapters then kind of looks at the role of the Bank of England and the way that it controls money, and answering that question, you know, can't we just print more? And so um, it's a superbly put together book, and you can understand you know, why it should do well. Uh, and I reckon, I've recommended it to all my GCSE cl- cl- kids and yeah. I know that a lot of them have already kind of purchased it. Um, yeah. I mean, I haven't heard how well they're getting on. I mean, I, <laughs> a few of the parents have said that they've read it and they've loved it. And it is just a brilliant, brilliant read. So well good. done to Jack Andrews and Rupal Patel for, for putting Fantastic. together a really good kind of pop economics yeah. book. Fantastic. So- all right. That's the end, really. So now, do you know, is there any future books that you've, you know, that are coming out? Uh, no. I want to mention the Rickard sisters. They've got a new graphic novel coming out in right. September. Okay. Now, their last one was The Ragged Trousers of Philanthropist, yeah. which we talked about before. Yeah. And they've got a new one coming out uh, based on, I think, The Suffragettes. Oh, right. And it, I mean, from some of the pre-picked, fantastic. So look out for that in September, I think, is the launch. Good. Um, but um, that's it, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. And we wish everyone uh, a relaxing summer. It's swelteringly hot in the UK for us at the moment. So perhaps what you could do is 
find a cool shady spot and pick yeah. up one of the books that, uh, that we, we, we've recommended. Uh, yeah, after listening to us. Yeah, of course. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, we'd like to thank our friend Nick, who gives us technical advice with regards to podcasting. And obviously follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at Economics in 10. And as always, you can t- contact us by email at economicsin10 at gmail.com. Yeah, and don't forget, if you enjoy what you listen to, or even if you don't enjoy what you listen to, don't hesitate to review us on whatever podcast platform you listen, you listen to along. Uh, for example, iTunes, but others, other providers do exist. Yeah. yeah and uh, we would wish you all a lovely, relaxing summer. Thank you.